0: Good evening, friends. I'm hoping that uh, by now that you're getting a feel for maybe soaking up at some kind of cellular level that one of the core messages that we're hoping to convey in the teachings is the uh, really fundamental role of kindness or friendliness friendliness or benevolence in this practice that we're doing together. That this is kind of an ethos that uh, we feel runs through the whole of the practice. It's what nourishes the heart and uh, really is the underlying motivation for engaging with any of this in the first place. I loved the image Beth used of the potatoes boiling together in the pot, and that uh, uh, kindness is like the bouillon that we flavor the cooking water with. But I was thinking, it, it, you know, it's so critical, maybe it's actually the taste of the water itself, in a way. Because, uh, as she also said, and we've other people have probably said in different ways, you know, it's, it becomes really evident that the state of our mind shapes uh, our experience of the world. And so there's a real um, value, so it's, it's essential really that we keep checking the taste of the water. You know? So tonight I'm going to share some reflections on metta with you i know it's a well-worn subject uh but it these are some thoughts that feel alive for me at the moment and i just invite you to take what's helpful to just uh, have a sense of being able to listen at ease there's no need to pull in anything that's offered or to push it away so to just sit comfortably and uh Trust, again, that what's useful will go in there somewhere. And as you sit, maybe just checking the quality of the mind right now. And I I particularly want to uh, emphasize the aspect of metta or the sense of metta as being the absence of ill will or the absence of contention. And so you might just also, whatever is happening in your mind this evening as you listen, however you're feeling in your practice today just uh, to offer yourself the possibility of non-contention with how it is so kindness is a really an aspiration a beautiful aspiration that's at the heart of Probably every spiritual path, and uh, for me, I I like the fact that when I walk into this space, I walk past those two stained glass windows. You know, I know that we all have different conditioning around around this, and different, you know, uh, it will bring up different uh, memories and so forth. But just the touching the um, the quality of kindness and benevolence. In another faith that was a part of my early life, actually feels like there's a there's a coming together of things, and it may may have that sense for you, and that's lovely. And if it doesn't, that's also not a problem. But and it, then it also this, the the aspiration to kindness doesn't just uh, arise in people followers of spiritual paths. I was actually. was googling earlier to try to pull up a quote that i thought i'd use for the talk and i was googled the benefits of metta and i thought i was going to get a reference to the Anguttara nikaya and i got all these different research projects onto the the benefits of loving kindness and that it's you know out there in the in the clinical world in a big way now too so it's kind of fun you know you can use it for weight loss and uh, <laughs> length, lengthening your telomeres and things like that. <laughs> the bits on your chromosomes that prevent aging. so) you know. <laughs> uh, But um, I think, you know, being the recipient of kindness, too, also is something that opens the heart. And last, in my last talk, I was you know, talking about this, this image I have of the mycelial mat underneath the connecting the, the network of uh, trees and plants predominantly. And maybe the kindness, you could say, is like the energy or the synapses that make the connections in that mycelial mat. And I was thinking about my particular personal corner of that network and how one of the reasons that I'm here is because uh, as a child, I heard my mother talking about her grandmother who i did meet um she was very tiny chinese lady living in hong kong and she she didn't speak any english and i didn't speak any chinese so i never had a conversation with her but she died when she was a few days off a hundred and uh so i did know her meet her several times in my childhood and that uh My my great-grandmother was about the kindest person that my mother had known in her life, and she was a very devout Buddhist and um, used to, first of all, walk my mother to school as a child, and she's sort of the closest person, and then my mother got sent to school in England at the age of 12, and she remembers her grandmother saying prayers for her safety uh, whenever she she came back to England. And so she said, you know, this, she, this was the kindest person in her youthful world. And so she said that Buddhists were the best Christians that she knew. <laughs> and so when I felt that I, Christianity wasn't giving me the answers that I was looking for, it was kind of natural to investigate Buddhism. So I owe that to my great-grandmother in part. We all have ways in which this network of kindness feeds us. So we have this word loving kindness and love is a word that we use in so many ways that it's kind of confusing. So there are lots of things I love about being here. I love the sunsets, I love pesto pasta, (laughs) I love spicy food, I love IMS. I also love my family and I love the Dharma and I love nature And that expresses lots of things, you know, which are not all meta, obviously. You know, we use it kind of in a casual way to express liking things. But in many of those things, there's also a sense of care and connection and friendliness. So just to explore a little bit uh, what meta is. And there's a kind of refrain that's gonna come through this talk a little bit, and that's the saying that metta is an intention and not a feeling. And really the fundamental intention is the intention of non ill will. So Beth used this famous quoted these famous words from the Dhammapada that hatred doesn't cease by hatred, by love alone does hatred cease, this is the eternal law. We had a little discussion afterwards um, because this is often given as the translation of those lines but actually the literal uh, translation is that hatred doesn't cease by hatred, by non-hate alone does hatred cease. I mentioned that to a member of staff in the SDR just now and, and they, said, they said, oh, great, that, you know, if we're, that's what you're talking about, we're lowering the bar a little. <laughs> and that's kind of interesting to me because for, for me it makes it more accessible and it feels like there's a lowering of the bar. But on the other hand, it could feel like the bar's going up if one holds it in that perspective. One of the great exemplars of this capacity for metta and for forgiveness it was the Cambodian monk, Maha Gosananda, who we often talk about in uh, talks on metta. And his, he came from a large family, uh, many of whom were killed uh, by the Khmer Rouge. But I think he lost something like 11 family members at that time and I th- believe he was in exile from Cambodia and when he came back to Cambodia he um, made a practice of visiting all the temples and gathering people around him and chanting over and over these lines from the Dhammapada hatred doesn't cease by hatred, by non-hate alone does hatred cease and he did tremendous work in uh, reconciliation and bringing people together after the time of the Khmer Rouge and I had the privilege to meet him when I was a nun at Amaravati I actually ordained together with uh, a Cambodian nun who's older than me she's about my mother's age she's still there and uh, she too had lost many close family members at that time and had to flee to the U.S. and uh, later later she became also very involved in peace work and so um, maybe partly thanks to her Mahagosananda visited Amaravati when we had our temple opening and I remember um, he did a little meditation workshop for the nuns and the novices and he was sitting here and we were just down there in front of him just a few feet away and he was just giving us a really basic guided anapanasati meditation but the quality of kindness that radiated from him was really unforgettable you just sat sat in front of him and felt that you were being really um saturated soaked with this uh love loving quality and he was so he seemed so happy and so light The, uh, some of the teachers who've spent time in Burma were also talking the other evening about uh, somebody that they they referred to as the happy Sayadaw. So this monk who, whatever was going on, was laughing and having fun and saying to him at one, Bante, how do you how do you manage to be so happy? And he said, ha ha ha, I have no ill will towards you or towards you or towards you or towards anyone in the world, and. Uh, the result was a happy mind. <laughs> so does that sound like a very high bar? It's really helpful to remember that metta is a parami, one of the ten perfections that actually it took the Buddha many lifetimes to uh, to develop, to cultivate. I really liked. I don't think I'd heard that before. I really liked the the word that Dawn used uh, in part one in in describing the paramis, the parami, perfection, as something that you complete. So the sense of complete kindness or complete patience, complete equanimity. And it's something that we're in the process of making complete. No. It's not something we're expected to just have or be able to churn out just like that. But it's a quality that we can develop. And as I said before, it's an intention and not a feeling. So I think one misconception when we we try to teach this or train ourselves in it is the sense that if we're somebody who's not terribly emotionally expressive then metta isn't our thing or if we, we feel like I don't, I don't really feel my emotions very much and I was reflecting on this in terms of the metta sutta and the, particularly the beginning, the beginning section of the metta sutta that there are actually many ways that metta or uh, non-ill will, that harmlessness expresses itself so there's a line in there that I really like, which is that uju ujucha suhujucha, which means upright, really upright, with this, a sense of integrity. And then it talks about being straightforward and gentle in speech. I was actually thinking about my father, who is a kind of typical Englishman of his generation, and uh, not terribly... Um, flamboyant or emotionally expressive mm-hmm. but i'd say that he's somebody who really embodies that sense of dignity and integrity in a quiet way and I've, for various reasons i've been spending more time with him in the last year or two than I, I have for a long time and i've noticed that i'm reflecting on it in the 50 plus years that i've known him um I don't think I've ever heard him really say unkind things about anyone. Sometimes he says something irritable, but you know, even where there's real cause to, for him to be say something unkind, he, he has this natural sense of restraint around his speech, and that generates a sense of safety and respect around him. And this is a kind of manifestation, I think, of metta. was also pondering that and remembering an interview uh, that was quite an old interview on the BBC with Maya Angelou, the poet, who had a really hard life in her early years. And in this interview, she's so warm and dignified, and there's absolutely no trace of bitterness there. And she was asked about her, her faith and she was a Christian and, and she said, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, I'm trying to be a Christian, I'm not a Christian yet. Uh, There's a real sense of humility also, but tremendous dignity. And I've noticed that particularly amongst other elders in the African-American community, this sense of dignity and forbearance. You know, these are ways that meta manifests itself. So which of these do you notice yourself sometimes manifesting if you think that juicy love is not your thing? The qualities of one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. To be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble, not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, frugal in, the, in your ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. You know, we manifest these things sometimes, I'm not saying that we necessarily manifest them all the time, but notice them in your... Um, in your experience because the, the metta sutta can be taken as a, as a kind of manual for training I think, it's an instruction manual and when those conditions that I've just named are present in the mind then kindness naturally begins to shine forth so meta isn't something that we have to try and, to force or to pump out it's more like drawing back the curtains or parting the clouds to start to let go of what gets in the way of it what it isn't as you know is liking an attachment you know, which is sometimes called the near enemy or imposter for meta because liking an attachment is kind of agitating it, there's a that Sense desire that is involved is agitating, so one might be practicing metta for a friend, and yeah, may you be safe, may you be happy, and it's like, oh yeah, maybe we should spend more time together. Yeah. I wonder what you know you're doing in December. It would be really nice if we could do this or that together. Yeah, and you know, I hope I hope you'll always like me. <laughs> you know hope you've got as good feelings towards me as I have towards you. So, this, this is not real matter. There may be metta in there, but it's not pure matter. So this, this sense that matter is not a feeling... So Carol told me recently that Sharon Salzberg, I haven't heard this direct from her own lips, but says that she will go to her grave saying, meta is an intention, not a feeling. (laughs) So she obviously being, you know, this is the big thing that she teaches. She obviously has the impression that people take a long time to get this. And I have to say, it's taken me a very long time to get this too. You know, I've heard it said so many times and I say it to people And yet at the back of my mind, I hadn't realized that there was kind of lingering belief that we just say this to encourage ourselves when we're not really feeling it so that we keep practicing, you know, and to encourage people who aren't really getting it. And, you know, eventually they'll get the feeling. Eventually the feeling of goodwill will arise if you just kind of keep going with it. So this, the, in, in there a sort of sense that there's something that we have to fabricate or concoct that's meta. And what I've come to realize is that this is not true. You know, that Sharon is right. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> you know, so meta is what we experience when there's a connection accompanied with a real Maybe temporary, but a real absence of ill will. And I I think I've been tasting this in my practice since I I was practicing Metta for the last six weeks, just to give you a kind of um, background. (laughs) You know, with a real ongoing commitment to non-ill will, I began to understand what this really means. Because... True meta, I think, expresses itself as open-heartedness. And the feeling is a feeling of relief or release. It's peaceful, it's spacious, it's happy, it's available. It's not gooey. I was expecting a kind of gooey feeling, I think. Maybe, you know, you might be wise to this already, but this is me, me confessing here. Yeah. And there's a a lot of gratitude and spontaneous generosity that arises. And these feelings are the results of metta, the results of the momentary liberation of the heart through loving kindness. They are not metta itself. Metta is the intention of non-harming, of goodwill, which is the absence of ill will. And this is why there's so much emphasis on generosity in practice because generosity is really meta in action. So in terms of the the stickiness and the attachment is that you can notice the difference when you have the impulse to give somebody something, even your attention, and you want something back uh, versus when you just give and you're glad to give. And the impulse to to do that, the impulse to be kind to those that we're connected with, to those that we love, is very natural because we kind of put ourselves naturally in their shoes. So I had a a a very good friend who's passed away now, but um, she had been a child in England uh, in the Second World War. And because of rationing and the... uh, unavailability of transport and things there were no bananas I think they had bananas in the UK before, before the war and then for five years six years there were no bananas and she really was looking forward to the day when she might have a banana again and she would ask her mother all the time when are there going to be bananas and eventually sometime after the end of the war bananas started arriving again And she got this banana and she took it off to, you know, some private space to (laughs) treasure it and enjoy it. And her best friend at that time was the family dog. And so what she did was she took her banana, her precious banana, and she cut it in half and she gave half to the dog. Assuming that this would be as great a treat for the dog as for her, <laughs> and of course the dog actually didn 't like the banana. it sniffed it around and kind of licked it and spat it out, and things so there was half her precious banana <laughs> mauled by the dog, but that was such a beautiful impulse to me to to want to share share her banana in that way. <laughs> Maybe she wanted something back, but I think the, in the initial impulse, you know it's, it's something very spontaneous and very natural. And it's uh, unconditional rather than conditional. So one of the words that's used obviously for meta in the traditional teachings is one of the four immeasurables. So whereas wanting, greed, hatred and delusion make measurements around everything, they assess everything. Meta is immeasurable; it's infinitely generous. So the immeasurables are also known as abidings, the Brahma viharas. This is the same word that Andrea was using to talk about mindfulness. That's used in the in the um, Satipatthana Sutta and in the Metta Sutta. Viharati one abides. One abides pervading the world with a mind imbued with metta. The same with all the other Brahma Viharas, compassion and uh, appreciative joy and equanimity, which rest on the foundation of metta. I'm not going to talk about those tonight, but really metta is like the bedrock underneath them. So this word abiding... I know some of the non-native English speakers here, it's an unfamiliar word, and kind of teasing out the nuances of what it means has been interesting, some of the conversations I've had. But it's a place where you live or dwell. And I like the English word habit or habitat. You know, a place that you inhabit. And this comes, the same root. It's like a place which the mind frequently gravitates back to. And this is how we cultivate it. It's also the place where the devas abide. So I don't know if Greg has talked about the metta sutta being food for the devas yet. But the metta is the food of the devas. So this is the aspiration expressed in the sutta. It doesn't really, not in the, in, in the metta sutta, there's kind of instructions as to how to practice metta. But whenever the Buddha s- says cultivate meditation on loving kindness as he does to his son rahula he says rahula develop meditation on loving kindness for when you develop this any ill will will be abandoned the way that he says to do it is he just says one abides pervading the world with a heart imbued with metta, above below around and everywhere to all beings including oneself without exception One abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with metta, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So that feels to me like a high bar. (laughs) So what do we do about this? How do we go about cultivating it? In the... Metta Sutta, the Karaniya Metta Sutta that we chant, it says one should sustain this recolle- recollection, etang sating adotea. So it's a sati, which is the word for mindfulness, it's, a, it's something to keep in mind, to establish and keep recalling an intention. So I think there's a way that we can kind of marry it to our mindfulness. And we have to be creative or we can be creative in the ways that we find to do this, to keep doing this. So when you open and close doors, I think somebody invited us to be mindful of reaching towards doors and things. You know, we could have things that we begin to link to a sense of oh, is there Can I do this with a sense of gentleness and friendliness? I really like when I practice with the breath to have a sense of befriending the breath. When I walk on the earth to have a sense of befriending the earth. So that we just start, the the marrying of mindfulness and uh, goodwill starts to become natural. And then, of course, there's the traditional practice in this, in this lineage and the, the chant that we do, the other chant that we do in the evenings, the um, sharing of metta, is that wishes well to all these different categories of being uh, is the expression of that practice. So the wish that beings, including oneself, be free from hostility that they be free from physical and mental suffering and that they can easily find what they need to live comfortably. And I like this sense again of that they be free from hostility. May they be free from their own hostility. May they be free from my hostility. May they be free from everyone's hostility. So we we can boil those down into some succinct phrases that, and we need each to find the ones that work for us, but traditional phrases are like, may I be safe, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, by which I mean as healthy as is possible for you to be, or this body have as much ease as is possible for it to have, and may one live with ease. And then we connect those words and phrases to the thoughts of other beings. One thing I've come to realize from doing metta practice more intensively is that some of the frustration that I I was having before with this traditional metta practice was a sense of, um, or came from it, uh, having too high expectations, of what it should accomplish, and if you think about your vipassana practice or what your the, the regular meditation that you do throughout the day, if you're someone who has not done a lot of meta practice, if you were to practice that once a week for 45 minutes, you know, you probably uh, would not have the facility that you have with it now. And yet we kind of launch ourselves into a once-a-week meta-practice and we think it should be working mm-hmm. straight away, you know. Um, it, takes, it takes time to develop this. And if we really want to develop it, we maybe need to do it more frequently. But whatever, however much we do, we're doing something useful, one of the questions that arose a lot in my mind is how do I do this right? And we can get really complicated about it. And I was reflecting when my mind got into one of these places as I was practicing in the last few weeks. Suddenly you thought, hang on, Jaya, you're making this far too complicated. You know, a child knows how to practice goodwill. (laughs) If you were trying to teach a, a, you know six year old practice of metta you might just invite them to send friendly wishes to their teddy bear or something and they wouldn't you know they wouldn't say oh how on earth do I do that they'd know exactly what to do and uh, so we, we can kind of come at it with a little bit more innocence so we do these categories of people and we kind of catch, we can catch the flavour of it when it naturally arises with easy people or creatures, maybe the chipmunks or the birds, or our benefactors and friends. And not to be put off because it, we've, if we sense that the meta that we we are um, intending is mixed with attachment because we're also developing mindfulness and mindfulness and wisdom will begin to start discerning and teasing out these threats. I don't know if Carol said this in part one but a Carol quote I like is that fake meta is better than real aversion <laughs> your meta doesn't have to be perfect that helped me <laughs> And as we do this, it's really helpful to recollect our, our own desire for safety and well-being and notice how that's a universal desire of all beings. So they say that approximate cause of, for the arising of meta is to notice the good qualities of others. I was thinking, one can't really assess that with a chipmunk or a turkey, but when I, when I see these creatures outside, what arises that is actually a sense of appreciation, a sense of recognizing their vulnerability, and also some kind of respect for the miracle of life towards animals, towards even the trees. Maybe we want to practice meta for the trees. And actually we could have that in relation to one another too. Each of us is somehow a manifestation of the, the miracle of life. So I just want to say a few things about meta for neutral and difficult people. There's a great supply of neutral beings here. So I hope not everybody has become a friend or a foe yet. You know, so there's n- neutral people here, people we don't know. And it's quite easy to uh, imagine, to recognize that they have some good qualities, the fact that they're here practicing with us. And it's interesting how one comes to really love one's fellow yogis, many of them. And they also, you know, sometimes rub up against us like these potatoes in the pot. So Dharma practice, the practice can be bumpy, But it's also true, what the Buddha said, that the the teaching is beautiful, or practice is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. So I've heard so many people um, noticing, saying how, they're noticing that they feel less aversion and ill will towards people over things that they used to find really irritating. It's really good to notice this in one's experience. And of course, maybe it varies from day to day according to one's mood and so on. But we can notice how how we predispose our mind conditions, whether we experience the world as lonely and hostile or as friendly that's how people manage to be hermits in caves for years and years and years without feeling loneliness because they're practicing uh, this heartful connection with all beings and yet one can be in a very crowded place and feel uh, very isolated and very disconnected was reflecting how you know in many parts of the world or places where um, the lifestyles are more traditional and maybe there there are uh, fewer people around, maybe in the countryside. I noticed this in the certain bits of england or uh, in Switzerland or where i'd done a lot of hiking in sort of rural areas that people greet each other all the time. You know, it's normal to say hello to people when you pass them, to greet people and wish them well. And yet when we live in cities, you know, our habit is to keep our eyes forward and ignore everyone. There were some um, articles recently in the media about etiquette on aeroplanes and how it's the, become a thing. Is like you don't engage with the people on either side of you. You just kind of keep to yourself because I think people don't want to be trapped in a conversation with somebody that they don't want to engage with for 10 or 12 hours in a metal tube hurtling through the air. <laughs> you know? um, there's kind of protective reasons why we do this. But even if we're choosing, I mean, you could maybe treat the aeroplane like being on retreat. It's like we, we might choose not to engage, but one could still actively uh, wish people well. And it's really interesting how if we just hold that thought for five minutes towards one another. And I've played with this sometimes, you know, on the bus or the train or walking down the street where I live in Oxford, which is a city and there are quite a lot of people around. And how the effect on the heart of just holding that thought. And one doesn't have to really... Um, do anything big with it, but just noticing people and wishing them well, and it completely shifts the mood, or can completely shift the mood. And then also to notice, you know, the the number of people that we just ignore or dismiss, and what happens when we overlook or dismiss people. So, there's another line in the Metta Sutta that talks about, Let none despise another. It's to kind of um, to uh, think of somebody as not worth your regard. And that, that's how we kind of um, dehumanize one another and just stay stuck in our conditioned assumptions and prejudices. And also how we've come to really abuse not only segments of the population, but also... Um, of segments of the animal kingdom. So to practice remembering the intention of non-ill will, of kindness, of connection, and to see beings in their individuality, their humanity if they're human, or their beingness if they're other beings, and seeing about putting ourselves in their shoes or their hooves, or their paws, or whatever. You know, is, uh, it really um, creates a much happier world to live in. And when we do this with the use of phrases, the phrases aren't empty. You know. It can feel like, oh, I, I'm not really feeling this, so what's the point of saying, may you be well or may you be safe? But actually in doing that, we're protecting ourselves and we're protecting the other, another because it actually, it's like, the way I don't know whether um, Andrea this morning talked about working with thoughts and how one can use one thought to, pl- to replace another. This is one of the classic teachings of the Buddha. It's like when we drop those kinds of thoughts into the mind, they flush out and displace the other thoughts that might be ticking along unconsciously. At least they reveal them. Another thing is that when, when we practice uh, friendliness towards neutral people is that they cease to be neutral, you might have noticed. It's like you, you practice metta for somebody and then actually they start to become associated with a pleasant feeling and then when you do finally if you say it's a yogi that you've never spoken to on retreat you find that when you speak to them at the end of the retreat there's a natural uprising of joyfulness and they pick up on it and they likely manifest friendliness in return okay i've got too much here but i really i really want to say something about difficult people because uh, So, um, I noticed when I was doing this practice in the early half of the retreat at one point, I was kind of anticipating at some point that I would move on to the category of doing metta for a difficult person. And there was somebody I knew who happened to cross my path one day. They're not a yogi, they're not here now, so don't don't worry about this. But somebody I knew. And... Actually, you know, they could actually, I could use them as a friend, but they're somebody who kind of triggers a few difficult things for me. And so my mind was sort of shopping around for candidates for my difficult person. And I thought, oh, I could use that person. And I could really see from that moment, my mind started gravitating to everything that I found difficult about the person. And it was like I was constructing a difficult person. And I really had a, a saw how this is what we do all the time. You know, we, we create our difficult people. There's an accumulation of the mind landing on things that we find difficult about somebody or that we dislike or contacts that trigger aversion. And if the mind stays with that and makes much of it and gravitates to that, you know, eventually we have a difficult person. And we can reinforce that for years and years and years and decades. And it often becomes self-reinforcing. And I'm not saying that there isn't good reason sometimes, often, that those difficult feelings arise in the first place. But we really, we get involved in keeping the difficult people difficult and in making them difficult. And so I, at that moment, I okay, I'm not. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to uh, keep gravitating to these thoughts. And because it was only a minor thing, you know, it was quite easy to put down. But I became also really interested in why people, whenever I experience anyone as difficult, what's happening? And I noticed that it's always about me projecting the pieces of myself that I don't like onto other people so if I find somebody difficult what is difficult about them and I noticed for example I, I'm somebody who's kind of really brought up not to be needy and I, I, I have an aversion to people I perceive as being needy or to, to the quality of neediness in people but it's because I really you know there's that part of myself that doesn't want to be acknowledged Or well, conceited is another one it's so, So that was interesting. And then really, really difficult people. Because I think this is a big interferer in our practice and a huge source of suffering. And for me, in the past, it's been a real bugbear of time on retreat also. Beth said how we're tangled in a tangle. This is one way the Buddha described our predicament. And um, one way I've heard Rebecca talk about this is about karmic knots. You know, many of us come with one or more really difficult relationships or past hurts that we really you know, um, hope that our retreat practice is going to help to heal. And I've come to see them as being more like kind of um, karmic wounds. Or physical wounds. And the thing about a wound is that it hurts and therefore we keep fussing over it. And we fuss over and over again. And our own non-forgiveness or our ill will hurts. And so there are these persistent stories that come into our meditation. And I'd say that for years, every single retreat... You know, most days of my retreat, and maybe every time I walked around the loop, sometimes entire walking meditations, you know, this particular story or bundle of stories would resurface. And what I've come to realize is that rehashing it, I think, slowed down the healing process rather than speeding it up. So sometimes actually rehashing things in the company of a skilled therapist perhaps is like going for surgery. But we're not going for surgery here. On retreat, this is more of a holistic healing process. And so my sense actually of these things now is that the more useful thing to do is to leave them alone as best we can and help the body the mind, the immune system disease if we were to grow strong and healthy. And then these things will start to heal themselves. So to really take on board this suggestion that we don't work with what's most difficult and that actually it's okay to park what's most difficult for the time being. And what I've noticed is that as the as uh, the habit of of non ill will becomes stronger in the mind the habit of happiness that the difficult stuff starts to heal itself on its own so just a couple of ways that we might we might do that so, one of the things I've also become quite um, I've noticed quite a lot is the arising of Subtle manifestations of ill will, like Schadenfreude, this delight in the misfortune of others. Yeah. So, have you noticed thoughts arising in the mind, like, you know, there's an announcement in the hall, please don't do this or that or the other, and somebody's been irritating you because they've been doing that, and you think, aha, you know, <laughs> now they've been told? <laughs> or does it just my mind do that sometimes? <laughs> I've noticed one or two of those thoughts in the past and then they're realizing ah, actually that's, that's really ill will and I'm not wanting to invest in ill will and not to make it you know not to make oneself bad or terrible about it but just to notice, it's better that we notice these things than what we don't notice them or have you been glad perhaps noticed this little sense of satisfaction when you're competitor yogi misses their sitting you know, this person that you was really intimidating you because they were such a brilliant yogi and then they suddenly aren't there and you think oh they're not perfect after all <laughs> <You know. laughs> these kinds of things you know. so just notice the little ways in which the mind um, has these shimmers of ill will or the absence of goodwill and we can we can for me that's the kind of incentive to stay mindful and to offer an alternative to cultivate an alternative habit or you know we might find somebody's walking too slowly or too quickly so i've noticed like I'm going somewhere and I'm on a trajectory and then my my pace is kind of interrupted because somebody's being really slow and mindful in front of me just in the, the kind of, you know, junction area of the dining room or whatever maybe I'm trying to get to a sit on time or a meeting or you know do something in my room and get back in time for the beginning of the meal or whatever and then there's this irritable inner voice that goes "Oh, come on get real you know you're just trying too hard <laughs> and it, one can proliferate with that and say oh may, maybe maybe I'll write a note just asking if there can be a reminder that people just pay a bit more attention to one another in the kind of busy spaces and things and uh, you know, And then we start to notice that yogi every time we see them and kind of, are they walking too slowly? <laughs> <laughs> or, so one could have all that go on, or you can just notice, okay, I'm here, I'm on my little trajectory, and suddenly, oh, there's somebody going a bit slower in front of me. I can slow down. And maybe there's this little arising of unpleasant. It's like I've been interrupted in my tracks and there's okay so there's an arising of unpleasant, ah oh, I notice I was kind of clinging to my speed, does it really matter you know and there, there's a kind of one's a registering a, an unpleasant interruption This sense of dukkha as being not getting what one wants but there's no ill will towards the other yogi so You know, one could have exactly the same scenario with somebody going too fast or making too much noise. And then you see, oh, I could just, you know, I could get stressed about this or I could relax and I don't have to start accumulating ill will towards this person. And it's a big relief to realise that we don't have to like everyone all the time in order to be practising non-ill will. There'll probably always be times when contact with others triggers unpleasant feeling. But it doesn't have to interrupt our metta. Because we don't have to proceed from the unpleasant feeling to the generation of ill will. And that's different from feeling the ill will and then saying, kind of trying to layer some metta on the top of it to kind of, you know, get rid of it actually we're we're mindful of these contacts and I'm sure we'll be talking more about this actually we don't have to take that next step and all this can come just from the commitment to not practice ill will and to do the same with ourselves so we can we can do things which annoy ourselves or at least I do so like oh I've eaten too much or I should have gone for a walk earlier when it was ra- when it wasn't raining or maybe I wrote a note and I regret it or I actually I, I, one point a few weeks ago I said to Carol oh, I noticed I'm, I'm more mindful than normal and then I went out of the interview and I walked straight into another yogi laughter <laughs> And then you can can have the feeling, oh, goodness, I've really messed up there. They're going to hate me for the rest of the retreat, and they're going to think I'm so unmindful. Or, you know, sometimes I can think, did I really say that in my talk? And then we start generating all this ill will towards ourselves. But you can also notice yourself becoming kinder to yourself. So, I mean... My inner voice would often say things that are probably unrepeatable in a dharma talk. You know, language is something idiot, you know. And I just noticed now it's more of a, oh, Jayaji, that hurts. It's okay. Yeah. So, out of kindness, I will wrap up in a moment. But just to mention and there's this teaching of the Buddhas on the benefits of loving kindness, which I didn't find a translation that satisfies my mind, so I won't share it and may get shared in the metta practice. But just to some benefits that I've really been noticing from this intentional persistent cultivation of non ill will, a consistent reminder of the commitment to wish people well and not to wish them harm is a sense of more lightness and more happiness and more trust less fearfulness I actually noticed a changing relationship to the dogs walking around the loop so You know, those are rescue dogs, and it's a really very kind thing that the man who lives there does. The the people who live there do that, they take in all these different dogs and give them a home. But it's quite intense, isn't it? Sometimes when you're on a silent retreat and you're walking around the loop, and uh, you know, and then half a dozen dogs rush out and bark loudly at you, and some of them have their hackles rising and things. And even if you're a dog lover, unless you're like this stalwart one, it can be a little, little much, and so. And although I love dogs, I have had a couple of times of being bitten in the past. So, so I would go around the loop, going, you know, maybe be safe, and the past, trying, kind of trying to kind of get rid of this feeling of fearfulness of that. And then suddenly something shifted, and rather than me trying to thinking if I if I get the meta right the dog will come out and it won't bark you know that's the litmus test it's like if i if my better's meta's going really well they'll just come out and they'll just wag their tails and they're not going to bark or do anything like that and then but what's happened actually is that I've noticed that the dogs come hurtling out and even the hackles are up and the, the, the tails are wagging and I know that they're just kind of you know a little bit Nervy, but excited to see somebody and find out what's going on, and actually spontaneously there's a sense of oh, i'm really happy to see you. bark as much as you like <laughs> you know and uh, so that the the sense of you can be how you are I don't need for you to be any different, but uh, I appreciate you and i'm happy to connect with you, and I wish you well and this happens also you know maybe. Even in our dreams, you might notice. So I'm not going to read you the Buddha's lists of benefits, but see for yourself in your experience what the benefits are. I've noticed that when we practice a lot of metta, people start to look more beautiful. And we, we kind of tune into the goodness of others. We attract kinder people into our life, or we attract more kindness from others. so i hope that you will enjoy playing with finding your ways to play with and infusing your practice with metta as the retreat goes on and uh, take up the tools that are offered in the brahma vihara meditations but also you know throughout the day see what you feel uh, drawn and inspired to do to keep this quality alive in your practice so let's just sit together for a moment Thank you for your kind attention. And We've got half an hour for walking now, and then for those who'd like, we'll come back and chant together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.